From the book of Isaiah 43, verses 8 through 13. Lead out those who have eyes but are blind, who have ears but are deaf. All the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Which of them foretold this and proclaimed to us the former things? Let them bring in their witnesses to prove they were right, so that others may hear and say, It is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant, whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and apart from me there is no Savior. I have revealed and saved and proclaimed I and not some foreign God among you. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, that I am God. Yes, and from ancient days I am he. No one can deliver out of my hand. When I act, who can reverse it? Thank you. Well, good morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Larry Tingler, and I've been attending Cole with my family for about 11 years now. Um, When Jackson approached me, well, when we went to lunch and he said, would you uh, be willing to preach? I said, yeah. And then only later said, what's the passage? I will never do that again. (laughs) He said, it's Isaiah 43. We'll still be in the book of Isaiah. So I said, okay, that's good. Verse 8. And I said, verse 8, 2. He said, well, 43, 8, 2, 44, 8. I can tell you now, I nearly choked on my tater tot. Um, I said, that's, that, 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 that's a, a big passage. And he said, yeah, roll up your sleeves. You can do that. I said, okay. So I went home. I called my good friend Hernan. I said, hey, Hector, get over here. I need you. 20 minutes later, he's at my door. We read through the passage, and he's like, wow, this letty, this is good stuff, good context. What's the passage? That is the passage. Oh, letty. That's a big passage. I said, yeah. So we, uh, we called our good friend, our mentor, Nicholas Ivins, and we said, Nicholas, meet with us. And he graciously said, okay. And he read through part of it, and he's like, oh, this is good. I said, yeah, 44.8. I have never seen, if you know Nicholas, he's pretty laid back, but his eyes, the whole thing, every last syllable, Nicholas, he said, well, good luck. <laughs> he didn't say that, but, uh, but he did walk with us through this. So it's a big passage. Um, as you can see, I've rolled up my sleeves, and we're going to walk through it, every last verse of it. Um, so let's pray, and we're going to jump right in. Holy Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for bringing us together. Thank you, Father, for what your word has to say to us. More importantly, Father, we just pray that in a culture where we're inundated with information, where we are swamped with with knowledge, Father, dozens of translations, millions of sermons, Father, we're tired of hearing about you. Lord, we want to hear from you. And we just pray that today you would engage us, engage our hearts, individually speak to us, Father. Speak to us through your word. We pray these things in your your son's saving name. Amen. Okay, I love a good story. I love a story that's well told. And most good stories are pretty simple. They start with ordinary people 
in extraordinary circumstances, and they rise to meet those circumstances. This man has to get over that mountain. Good storyteller can replace that mountain with another man. So now you've got a, an antagonist and a protagonist. In this particular story, what we've got is more like a courtroom drama. We've got an accuser and we have the accused. And that's how it opens. Isaiah 43, verse, starting with verse 8. Lead out those who have eyes but are blind, who have ears but are deaf. All the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Which of them foretold this and proclaimed to us the former things? Let them bring in their witnesses to prove they were right, so that others may hear it and say, it is true. Lead out those who have eyes but are blind, who have ears but are deaf. I know that there are some people in the community of Cole uh, that are lawyers, and although, you know, Christian lawyer may sound counterintuitive, um, we serve a big God. It could happen. If I were to ask them, would they think of, who would they think of calling to witness, to testify in court? The blind and the deaf would not be at the top of their list. What lawyer has ever called a blind man and said, tell us, Mr. So-and-so, what did you see on the evening of such-and-such? -such? Or tell us, madam, what did you hear from your apartment balcony on the evening in question? A lawyer wouldn't do that because those people could offer no testimony. Yet these are the people being called out here. So the first thing I wanted to know is, okay, well, exactly who are these people? Who are these people and why are they being called out? Well, Rod spoke on it last week in Isaiah 42:19, Who was blind but my servant, and deaf like the messenger I send? Who was blind like the one committed to me, blind like the servants of the Lord? You have seen many things, but have paid no attention. Your ears are open, but you hear nothing. Those are the people of Israel. Those are the ones being called out. And not them alone. All the nations are being gathered together. All the peoples are being assembled. So at first I thought, well, God is going to lay down some righteous judgment. He's going to lay out the law for them. Now we know that this is prophesying Israel's uh, captivity in Babylon. And they're going to be there for about 70 years. So it's like, okay, he's really getting ready to let them have it. Which of them foretold this and proclaimed to us the former things? Let them bring in their witnesses to prove they were right that others may hear it and say it is true. Okay, wait a minute. This is not the people of Israel who are on trial. This is God. How is, this, how is that possible? Well, in order to understand that, we have to understand a little bit of what brought the people of Israel to this point to begin with. They have been worshiping idols. And every time you put an idol in place of the living God, you point an accusatory finger at him saying, you aren't good enough. Wasn't the first time the Hebrews have done it. Wasn't the first time humanity did it. The first person to ever do that was Adam. Well, the first person was Eve, but then Adam, he was there. And when God said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the fruit that I commanded you not to eat? What was Adam's first response? It was her. She gave it to me. Shifted the blame. And then when he looked to Eve, he said, what have you done? What was her response? <laughs> it was a snake. He tricked me. We don't know what the snake said. That's not recorded. 
I suspect because the snake was Satan himself, he just grinned. I think he just grinned because he knew what he had done. This is God being put on trial by his own people for not being good enough, for not providing enough. And again, it's not the first time it happened. When the people of Israel were in the desert, they said to Moses, what, was there not enough graves in Egypt? You brought us out here to die? In Egypt, we had watermelons and cucumbers. I guess cucumbers were a big thing for them. But the point is they had it good, relatively good in Egypt, better than they had it on the road, except when they were wandering in Sinai, their God was leading them. This is why it's God who's on trial. And so God changes tack with verse 10. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord. He completely turns the tables on him. Now, I, I'm, I can think on my feet relatively well, but I'll tell you one thing. When people turn the tables on me like this, it knocks me back. And it, it takes me a moment to recover. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. And just in case, just in the off event, that there was one of them who didn't know exactly what God they were talking to or who was speaking to them, he goes on in verse 11, I, even I, am the Lord, and apart from me there is no Savior. I have revealed and saved and proclaimed. I, and not some foreign God among you, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, that I am God. When they were in Israel, when they were in the Promised Land, and they began worshipping the gods of the nations around them, it wasn't those gods that brought them out of Egypt. It wasn't those gods that made the walls of Jericho come tumbling down. Those gods did nothing for them. And that's what he's asking them to prove. Oh, this is the God you want to worship? Okay, please, bring it. Bring it. Apparently, Baal, that whole episode on the mountain, wasn't enough. You want to make a case against me? Prove it. And bring your friends. Which is why the nations were called. I have revealed and saved and proclaimed. I, and not some foreign God among you. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, that I am God. Yes, and from ancient of days, I am he. No one can deliver out of my hand when I act. Who can reverse it? In our modern culture, especially here in America, we're, you know, we have a lot of advancements. We have pretty magnificent cities. But you know, our greatest cities are no match for a hurricane. The last couple of years, I think, have kind of proven that. Our cities, our technology, is no match for raging wildfire for shaking earthquake. When God acts, we can no more hold him back than we can hold back the sea. And any God that thinks, anytime we think that a false God can give us that or protect us from that, we're engaging in idol worship of the most heinous kind. And the Israelites at this time had done this. Starting in verse 14, this is what the Lord says. Your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Again, just in case they weren't sure which God they were talking to. For your sake I will send to Babylon and bring down as fugitives all the Babylonians in the ships in which they took pride. I am the Lord, your Holy One, 
Israel's creator, your king. He pounds it and pounds it and pounds it. This is who I am. When he says he's going to send the Babylonians as fugitives in the ships of their rejoicing, we all remember Solomon. Oh, know who Solomon was. One of the things, great things about Solomon was he had, a, he had an amazing trade network. Part of what made his trade network so vast was he had a magnificent ship, fleet of ships you know, called the ships of Tarshish. Those ships were built by the Chaldeans. This would have been, we know Babylon was inland, but Babylon was on a great river. And from that river, they had access to the sea. And from there, they had access to the, to the known world. And they sailed on the ships built in what at one time was the city of Ur. Now, does that sound familiar to anyone? Ur of the Chaldeans? That's where Abraham came from. Abraham was called from the city of Ur of the Chaldeans. This is what the Lord says, starting in verse 16. He who made a way through the sea, a path through the mighty waters, who drew out the chariots and horses, the army and reinforcements together, and they lay there, never to rise again, extinguished, snuffed out like a wick. Now, I don't know what it sounds like when a heart thumps down into your stomach. I know what it feels like. I've felt it a couple times today. I know what that feeling is like. Surely that's what they had to feel when they heard this passage. He's recounting for them mighty works. When he split the sea, the Red Sea, that they would walk across on dry land. When he brought Pharaoh and his mighty army, the horses and the chariots, the mightiest army of the day, and all those soldiers against a bunch of unarmed women and children and elderly. There were men too, yes, but the elderly, the women, they were unarmed. And then they had goats and dirt livestock. It was going to be a slaughter. And God took them across on dried land. And we know the rest of the story. Snap. The water came in, and they never rose again. This is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. The God they chose to turn their back on when they chose to worship false idols. Well, of course it's false. It, the definition of an idol is that it's false. Now, in verse 18, when I first read it, I got confused, so I had to sit on it, and I sat on it, and then I sat on it some more. Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. Okay, wait a minute. This whole book is about remembering the past. How many times through the Old Testament does he say, build an altar in remembrance, build an Ebenezer? We sing songs about Ebenezers, which are piles of stones for remembrance. Remember, remember, remember. And now he's saying, forget? Okay, Lord, even I'm confused now. Do not dwell on the past. He's not forgetting, saying forget him. He's not saying forget what he's done. What he's saying is forget what you've done that's gotten you here. You're in Babylon. Not a good place. Not where you want to be. There's no temple. Your, your um, nobles are my servants, are the servants in Babylon. So it's not where you want to be. Forget that. That's in the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Verse 19. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? Don't you see what's happening? 
I am making a way in the desert and streams in the wasteland. The wild animals honor me, the jackals and the owls, because I provide water in the desert and streams in the wasteland to give drink to my people, my chosen. Now, the wild animals honor me. Jackals, I've only seen a jackal once in my life. It is the ugliest little dog you've ever seen. I mean, I thought, like, chihuahuas were bad. No, jackals are nasty-looking things. They're scavengers. They don't, even, and they don't even eat nicely. They're just scavengers. Owls, you know, they're a pretty majestic bird. At least the owls that we have that I see in America, the great horned owl, the common barn owl around here. Um, some translations would say an ostrich. Ostriches are magnificent birds. Those things, an ostrich can outrun a lion. And have you seen the drumsticks on those things? Think what Chick-fil-A could do with one ostrich. <laughs> the thing about these animals is they're all unclean. They are unclean to, to the Hebrew people. Yet God says they honor him. How is that? They honor him because they are. Just by being who they are brings honor to him. We sing, or we, at least there are Christian songs out there now, that talk about how creation honors God. Magnificent mountain vistas, pounding surf, roaring rivers. We have much of that right here in Idaho. And all that honors God. Why? Because it is. But the rest of the verse, to give drink to my people, my chosen, then in verse 21, the people I formed for myself that they may proclaim my praise. Mountains don't praise God. Animals don't praise God. Only we get to do that. We are the only part of creation that can praise God. Why is that? We're the only ones who have the choice. We can choose to do it. We can choose not to. But as, we, as he showed with the Egyptians, you can choose not to, but you will honor him anyway, whether you like it or not. So wisdom would dictate, choose to praise him. So he is established from verse 8 through verse 22, or 21 rather. He's established who he is. He's told us a little bit about, or told the Hebrews, the Israelites, a little bit about uh, what he's done for them. And I think that as they heard it, it resonated. They remembered their Sunday school stories. They remembered the teachings from synagogue. Now verse 22, he goes... Um, sort of on the defense, or not on the defense, um, on the, um, what's the other? Thank you, somewhere. It was a lady, wasn't it? Yeah, offense. You can tell she's a football widow. Um, he goes on the offense. Yet you have not called upon me, O Jacob. You have not wearied yourselves for me, O Israel. You have not brought me sheep for burnt offerings, nor honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burned you with grain offerings, nor wearied you with demands for incense. You have not bought me any fragrant calamus or lavished on me the fat of your sacrifices. But you have burdened me with your sins and wearied me with your offenses. Again, he's talking about the false gods. All the gods of the nations around them, the Baal worshippers, the gods of the Hittites and the Jebusites and all the otherites, these gods required ridiculous things. Some even required child sacrifice. The prophets of Baal would slash themselves. God wasn't asking for any of that. He said, give me the fat of your lambs. Give me the first fruits. 
That's all I ask. He wasn't demanding that much from them as far as the sacrificial system, yet they couldn't do that. Instead, what did they do? They wearied him with their sins and with their iniquities. So, okay, what were these sins? What were these iniquities? Oh, you know, they weren't very good to their poor. That's true. They might not have been very hospitable. That could be true. At the end of the day, what are the sins? What are the worst sins? The, what does it really boil down to? They put another God in place of the holy God of Israel. Whenever we don't do something that we know we should do, we are declaring that we know what's best. And when we declare we know what's best, what we're declaring is that God doesn't. So whether we have an idol of stone, this is the 21st century, I don't know anybody who actually has household idols, but I know plenty of people that have made a god of their job. I know one individual who's made a god of his car. Could be our kids. Standing up here, I can make a god of ministry. But I can tell you truthfully, the moment that I place doing the work of the Lord higher than the Lord of the work, I have made that thing an idol. I have made you my idol because I've made that more important than God himself. That are the sins and the iniquities that pile up. You can say, well, isn't that all come down to pride? Yes, yeah, it does. It does. It's pride that tells us we can make the decision for ourselves. It's pride that tells us we don't need some other God telling us. Make a God in our own image, a God of our own design, whose only job is to please us. 25. Again, he establishes, he reinforces his credentials. I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. Why does he say that? Why does he say that there? Well, it goes back to what we, what we, we heard, what he said in 43, verse 4. Rod talked about it last week. Since you are precious and honored in my sight, and because I love you, I will give men in exchange for you and people in exchange for your life. Why does he blot out our sin? Because he loves us. Why did he blot out their sin? Because he loved them. This is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Review the past for me, verse 26. Let us argue the matter together. State the case for your innocence. How many false gods do that? How many false gods are willing to discuss it with you? Personally, I can think of none. It's their way or the highway. They're very demanding. The false gods of the ancient Americans, I shouldn't say ancient, but the Mesoamericans, we're talking the, the Aztecs and the Incas, they demanded a lot of blood. And the numbers of humans that were sacrificed, the Spanish... Conquistadors, when they marched in, they were just amazed by the piles of skulls from the human sacrifices. That's what the false gods demand. They don't want to argue with you. They don't want to engage. They don't want to discuss it. But God is coming down to us here. Make, review the past for me. Let us argue the matter together. Make the case for your innocence. And again, bring, bring your witnesses at this point, 
you can almost hear the gavel. I think it's called the gavel that pounds on the, the thing where the judge sits in his black robes. You can almost hear it pound because verse 27, your first father sinned. Your spokesman rebelled against me. Adam sinned, and everyone since then has been born in sin and iniquity. Don't look to your teachers, because they're born into the same sin and into the same iniquities. Review the past for me. Your first father sinned, and your spokesmen have rebelled against me. So I will disgrace the dignitaries of your temple, and I will consign Jacob to destruction, and Israel to scorn. Now in this whole book, not the whole book, I'm sorry, the whole chapter, He's talking about who he is. And the idea that the Israelites pointed an accusing finger at him, saying, you're not good enough. We think we can do better. Seriously? Seriously? Well, they, that's what they did. And so he passes judgment. But his judgment is only one verse. So I will disgrace the dignitaries of your temple, and I will consign Jacob to destruction and Israel to scorn. He is not taking pleasure in this. This is not his, what he wants. He talks more about the, the punishment for the Egyptians. He talks more about how he's going to make Babylon pay. Babylon will be the instrument of his, of his um, chastising his people, but they'll pay the penalty for it. But their punishment gets one verse. He who made you, who formed you in the womb, and who will help you? You're not in a good place. No guarantee it's going to get better before it's over. But he will help you. Do not be afraid, O Jacob, my servant. Jeshurun, who I have chosen. Now, Jeshurun is an interesting, um, it's an interesting word. It means the upright one. It's used here in contrast to uh, Jacob in the same way that Israel is sometimes used as a contrast to Jacob. But it means the upright one. It only appears three other times, so a total of four times in the Old Testament. Uh, the other three times, it appears in Deuteronomy, uh, chapter 32, verse 15, and then for chapter 33, verses 5 and 26. In all cases, it's referring to Israel. It's speaking of Israel. And it speaks an absolute wonder of grace, because despite their sin, despite being deeply flawed, deeply sinful, choosing other gods, worshiping idols. What does he call them? His beloved, his upright ones. I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. This is verse 3. And I would like to point out that while verse 33, or chapter 33, ended with judgment, chapter 44 begins with, but now. But now, you messed up, you messed up, you messed up. Punishment. But now, new chapter. How many of us have wished that we could turn a page in our life, start a new chapter, new phase of our life? That's precisely what he's doing here. But now, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, who I have chosen, I'll pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessings on your descendants. They will spring up like grass in a meadow, like poplar trees by flowing streams. I grew up in Northern California, 
and I spent more than a few summers working in my cousin's vineyards in, in Calistoga and St. Helena, which is all part of the Napa Valley. And yes, my family's lost their vineyards. These vineyards have been in my family for close to 100 years now. They're gone, all gone. But when I lived on a ranch up there, we had wildfires similar to the ones that are plaguing California now. And there's a couple things I can tell you about those kind of fires, and many of you have probably experienced these same things. After a fire like that, that stench stays in your nostrils. You can take a shower. You can leave the area that's been burned, but the smell stays with you. There have got to be at least a thousand shades of black and a million shades of gray. Because when you walk into a landscape that's been devastated by a wildfire like that, that's all you see. It's almost lunar in its desolation. But one thing I can tell you, they're entering the rainy season now. Next spring, grass is going to appear out of nowhere. Bushes are going to start growing again. Life is going to come back. Some trees have been reduced nothing to a blackened stump. But there are some trees that are blackened and they look completely lifeless. But you wait. Next April, May, June, they're going to bud out. And like a great green fist shaking itself at death, life will come back. That's what these people were hearing. It was desolate. It was dusty. It was not where they wanted to be. But life will return. And not just grass in the meadow, which springs up overnight and then withers, but poplar trees by streams. I think of the explorers when they first entered the Boise Valley, walking across the desert, dry, dusty, dead grass, sagebrush. Jeez, it's like driving from Boise to, driving to Boise from mountain home. Ugh. And then they come over that hill, and what did they see? A blue river winding through a valley lined with trees. Why were they so excited by that? Shade, rest a place where they can sit down. That's what these people were hearing. And not just that that's what God would provide, but that that would be them. That this would be their offspring. It wasn't over. One day, the Babylonian captivity would end, and when it did, they would bounce back. In those days, verse 5, one will say, I belong to the Lord. Another will call himself by the name of Jacob. Still another will write on his hand the Lord's and will take the name of Israel. This is very important because this is the way people respond when God engages, when they choose to engage God. They follow him. In the Old Testament, when a bondservant was freed, that bondservant could then go his own way. However, if the bondservant chose to remain with that master then that master would get an elder from the village. He would pierce his ear at the doorpost of that master's house and thereby declare to the entire community, I choose to remain this man's servant. That's what it means when they write their, the Lord's name on their hand. Starting verse 6, this is what the Lord says, Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty, I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. Who then is like me? Let him proclaim it again. You got something to say? Then stand up. Oh, wait, you would. You can't stand up. 
Let him declare and lay out before me what has happened since I established my ancient people and what is yet to come. Yes, let him foretell what will come. Now, this must have just terrified them because they knew they couldn't do that. Their idols couldn't do anything. They knew darn good and well their idols could do nothing for them. Even they couldn't tell what would happen, what was going to happen. They might have been able to, to recount to God what he'd done in the past if they'd been listening in synagogue, if they'd listened to their lessons. This is what you've done for us. But they couldn't tell them what was going to happen. And then again, his grace. Do not tremble. Do not be afraid. Did I not proclaim this and foretell it long ago? You are my witnesses. Is there any God beside me? No, there is no other rock. I know not one. God makes an extremely strong case here. There are no other gods. Follow what you want. It's not a God. And as I pointed out, this is not the first time this happened to Israelites. They'd done this before. Humanity had done this before. Being the third Sunday of the month, it's important for us to remember that 400 years or so from this time, God will be put on trial again by the very same kangaroo court that's being called here. Men who were, had eyes but were blind, had ears but were deaf. And when Jesus stood before the Sanhedrin, that's who he was dealing with. If anyone should have seen, it should have been the Pharisees. If anyone should have been able to hear Christ's voice and recognize him, it should have been the Sadducees. But they were blind and they were deaf. And God chose not to defend himself. He let them put him through that trial. He let them condemn him and he let them crucify them. Why? 43.4 Since you are precious and honored in my sight and because I love you. It hasn't changed one bit in the over 2,000 years since this was written. We are precious and we are loved. And for that reason, he gave his son for us.